When I was in the sixth grade, I remember very clearly getting my very first pair of name brand tennis shoes. And I grew up in a household where I didn't have those types of things. And I grew up, you know, always getting either hand-me-downs or Walmart special. And that was pretty much what I wore. But all my friends, it seemed, had like the really cool Nike shoes or Adidas or whatever the case may be. And I didn't have those types of shoes. But sixth grade, but sixth grade was going to be different than any other time before. Because my mother bought me a pair of black Reebok tennis shoes that had the Reebok logo on the side. And when I would sit at my desk, I would kind of take my pants and just let everybody kind of see I was wearing Reeboks. Because I wanted people to know I had name brand shoes that were cool. And I felt like at that point that all of a sudden... I just went up, you know, in a whole new level of coolness and acceptance. And I thought because I had this now, I was somebody special. I was someone important because until that point, I believed that, you know, people mattered more because of the clothes they wore, the shoes that they had. And that was the belief that was driving my behavior. It was the belief that was driving my identity during that time. And that happens so often when we're younger, but it doesn't stop just because we get older with years. It translates into different things. And we begin to put our identity in things maybe that aren't clothing, but we'll put our identity in our position at the company. We put our identity in the type of house that we live in. We put our identity in the type of car that we drive or the type of vacations that we take or the people that we associate with. And we'll even vicariously place our identity in the people that we know and the people we're connected to because we think that if we know the right people, if we're connected to people that we think other people think are important, then that through association makes us important as well. And we derive our identity from that. Oh, well, I met this celebrity or I know this person or I'm, I, I'm able to you know, have this person in my cell phone. Look, I have a picture with me and this person. And we think because of those associations that all of a sudden now we matter and we'll derive our identity from that. Or maybe even we'll take that same idea and we'll vicariously live it through our children. Our, my son is, you know, this sports star. My daughter is this sports star. Or they're accomplishing this and accomplishing that. And because of the success that our children will achieve, we'll vicariously adopt that significance from that and tell other people about that for the sole purpose of wanting them to think well of us. People do this all the time. And it's really exposing something in us. It's exposing an identity crisis. It's exposing that we're searching for the wrong things to tell us who we are and tell us why we matter or why we're important because we're looking to all of the wrong pieces in our lives to attribute value in our lives. And it's the wrong thing. It's the wrong direction. But these things have shaped our identity. And here's the main problem with these things. They're driven by fear. And fear enslaves us to believing lies about our identity. Fear actually chains us and it immobilizes us from moving forward because fear then becomes the primer that moves us in the direction that we're going in life and keeps us having that forward momentum of driving us further and further and deeper and deeper into things that are captiv captivating us, things that are enslaving us, things that are putting us into bondage. And now, instead of serving God, we begin to serve the opinions of other people. We began to serve and be enslaved to what our neighbors think about us, what our siblings may think about us, 
what our parents may think about us, what the boss thinks about us. And we live our entire lives in bondage over to what other people may think, what they may accept and what they may reject. And it happens all the time when we allow fear to direct our lives to find and shape and carve out our identity. And it's this idea that will continue to move throughout people's lives who do not have a strong foundation of where they derive their identity from. Where do I get my identity? Where does it come from? How do I know who I am and how do I know whose that I am? The Apostle Paul was dealing with this same type of thing because the church in Ephesus was in an identity crisis. And they were in an identity crisis because of all of the things that were surrounding them that were very much anti-Christ, especially the false teachers that were permeating the society of their day. Primarily, one of the false teachings that was popular in that day was called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was this idea that you could somehow become more superior than someone else by understanding these angelic levels of revelation and knowledge that no one else had. So it was almost like the more you know, the more special you are. So all the special people have had these deep revelations and this deep understanding that's come to them through these angelic levels of understanding things that, you know, the common people don't understand. It's a good thing that Ephesians was written, you know, a couple thousand years ago because we don't deal with anything like that today. No one's trying to, like, outclass each other spiritually. I mean, but we'll read about it just for a good history lesson. No, we all deal with this today, don't we? We still go through these same cycles where we began to think because of our uh, tenure in the church, we began to think because of the amount of money we've given, the amount of hours we've served, or the things that we've done, or the people we're associated with. We begin to think we're significant, or we matter, or we have some sort of, of, of degree of importance because of those things. How many scriptures we've memorized, how good of a person we've been, how many things we've stayed away from, and how many things that we've embraced. And it's the same idea that we're still even looking to good things and God-honoring things often as a source to shape our identity instead of where we should truly have our identity shaped from. And that is Christ alone. And this is what the Apostle Paul was dealing with. He was dealing with people that wanted to know more spiritual things. They wanted to go deeper, as we say in church, whatever that means. We want to go deeper, and I want to, and it always sounds so mystical, and it always sounds so, you know, wow, deeper. Wow, let's go deep. That was deep. And so these people wanted to go deep, and they were really proud of how deep they felt that they had gone. But they had gone so deep that they had gotten away from the foundation that was supposed to shape our identity, and that's Christ alone. So Paul's bringing them back to that by reminding them of who they were and then pointing them back to the source of our hope and the foundation of our faith, and that's Christ. So if you have your Bible this morning, which I know you do, Ephesians chapter 2, go ahead and open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read the first three verses of Ephesians 2 where Paul is describing to the church in Ephesus their condition before Christ, which is interesting. Here you have Christian people, and Paul is taking time in this letter that he's writing from prison. He's taking, he's taking precious ink and precious time and selecting these words carefully, and he chooses in this portion of the letter to remind them of who they were before they encountered Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's writing this from a prison in Rome to the Christians, reminding them of who they were so that they can understand now who they are because of Christ. And he wants them to be equipped to live out the life that, he ha- that God has called us to. He wants them to understand their purpose. He wants them to understand that God wants to have them be equipped to do the work of the ministry, not just grow in head knowledge, not just grow in spiritual experiences, not just grow in knowledge of, 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 of all these spiritual things, but actually continue to grow in their affections for Christ by reminding them of their need for Christ and then equipping them to be able to live this life in a way that's coming from an understanding of who I am and whose I am. And he's wanting them to understand this by saying, you once were cut off. You once were dead in your trespasses. You were once a stranger. You were once an enemy of God. You were once a slave. You were once in bondage. You just thought differently. You thought like everyone else. And and you know, it was just by nature that you were a child of wrath. The things you did, you didn't have to be taught to do wrong. You know, you don't have to teach a baby how to be selfish. Oh, somebody just didn't like that. Oh, well, babies are precious. Yes, they are, but they throw temper tantrums. And if you don't discipline them and if you don't correct them, they will continue to throw tantrums and then they will be throwing adult tantrums and it won't be so cute then. You have to, that child, when when that child grows up, you don't have to teach a child to be selfish. You don't have to teach a child to lie. Come here, son, let me teach you how to tell a good lie, you know? You want to make sure it's convincing. You want to use the right tone. You know, you don't want to go too far. You want to use, just go far enough to where it's believable. You don't have to teach a child. You don't have to sit down and coach them how to lie. There's something in us that is selfish. There's something in us, and it's this by nature we are children of wrath. It's this by nature there's something in us that needs to be changed. There's something in us that needs to be different. And we get in these patterns of thinking and the whole world is programmed around this idea of selfishness. The whole world is programmed around this idea of custom, whatever you want, however you want it. And the more things that please us and satisfy us and accommodate us, those are the things we're going to be attracted to the most because we think at the end of the day that it's all about us. It's about my comfort. Well, the, you know, I, I, I think that things should be done this way. I think things should be done that way. And we want to tailor everything to our liking because it's by nature. It's something in us that we have to surrender to Christ, but we have to realize our need for Christ instead of allowing our identity to be shaped by all of these things the world has had us believe we should be identifying with and should derive that identity from. And Paul's saying, you were once this way. So it made sense when you behaved a certain way. It made sense when you thought a certain way. It made sense when you were dead in your trespasses because you by nature were children of wrath. But praise God, the story doesn't end there. Amen, somebody. Let's check out verse 4, which is awesome. Verse 4 says, but God, I love the turnaround here, but God being rich in mercy 
because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, now Paul is shifting this idea that he's presenting to the Ephesians. He's saying, you once were dead, you once were alienated, you once thought a certain way, and you were just repeating the pattern of someone who was a stranger, who was an alien, someone who had been cut off from the fellowship with God, someone who was dead in their trespasses, someone who just thought carnally, thought selfishly, but God saw, and he reached out, and he made a way where there was no way, and it was his grace that accomplished this. It wasn't something you accomplished. It wasn't something you did. Because otherwise, if it was something that you earned, something you deserved, you could boast about it. You see, this is what separates Christianity from the rest of any type of religious belief system in the world. Because Christianity depends on what someone else did and requires us to have faith and trust in another. Every other world religion has this idea of, of morality. So it's not us just being good moral people and being good neighbors and you know trying to love other people. No, the world understands that apart from Christ. They, they want to try to accomplish that. People understand, I need to do good, I need to be a nice person, I need to be neighborly. So it's got to be something more than just being nice and being good or being moral. It doesn't even uh, attribute itself to simply being or limit itself to being benevolence and generosity. There are many types of religions and people who aren't even, uh, have no belief system uh, at all in some sort of deity that will be benevolent and generous. So it's got to be something else, something outside of benevolence. Something out of, outside of justice, something outside of kindness, something outside of morality. And the difference maker is Jesus Christ because he did it, what you and I could not do in our own strength. Every other world religion says you have to do it. You have to try to somehow tip the scales of justice in your favor by doing more good than what you did bad. You did bad and now you need to do good, try to do more good than you did bad. That pretty much sums up every world religion. And I'm not saying go out and do bad, but what I am saying is that Jesus paid the price and now has empowered you to live a life to the glory of God and any good works that you do aren't necessarily the pathway to lead you to Christ, but rather the good works that come out of someone who's been made alive in Christ, they come out of an understanding of who I am in Christ and whose I am in Christ and my identity now drives my behavior. Instead of me trying to do good works to earn something from God and get on God's good side, I now do good works because I love him and because I have given myself and surrendered myself to the one who gave me everything. And when I live in such a way, I don't see sacrifice as a burden. I don't see serving God as a burden. I don't see it as a chore. I see it as I get to do this. There's a big difference in someone who understands I get 
to do this. I get to be a part of the family of God. I've been brought in by what Christ has done for me. And when God's grace defines me, I am empowered to live differently because now I'm free. I'm no longer in bondage. I'm no longer that slave to sin. I'm no longer chained to be afraid of what everyone may think or what everyone may want to compare me to or what I previously compared myself to in order to gain some sort of identity. Now my identity comes from knowing him and that grace that he's shown me, me getting what I did not deserve, that grace that he's shown me now shapes my life and shapes the way that I view myself because in Christ, you are no longer obligated to live in fear. That's good news, amen? So many times, fear drives people's lives, but if you are in Christ, you are not obligated to live that way. I want you today, Christian, to hear me say that Christ has set you free. If you are in Christ, you are free, and he who the Son has set free is free indeed. That means I'm no longer obligated or tied to the past. I'm not obligated to the things that once held me bound. I'm not obligated to the things that once enslaved me. I now am living for the glory of God. I'm now living as a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Amen, church? And now when I cry out to him, I'm crying out to him from a position of need, saying, I need you, Lord. I recognize you are sufficient, and in you there is nothing that is lacking. I heard this story years ago from uh, a pastor, and he told this story about when his daughter was in gymnastics. She always wanted to show her dad what she had learned when she went to gymnastics class, right? So she could do a cartwheel, she could do a flip, you know, all the different things that she learned in gymnastics. And he said one day, he was sitting in his recliner and he was reading the newspaper. You guys remember newspapers, some of you? Some of you still subscribe to the newspaper, right? You know, you take it and for some reason you got to rattle it and you got to boom, you know, you got to boom, get it out there because that's what you do. And you never read the newspaper through your glasses. You kind of tip them down. Boom, boom. Yeah. And you're reading the newspaper. Well, he said he was trying to read the newspaper and his daughter comes out. She goes, daddy, 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 daddy. I want you to watch me do my trick. So he puts the paper down. Okay, I want to show you what I learned in gymnastics class. So she flips and she, you know, turns and she somersaults and does all her things. And he goes, oh, that's good, honey. That's awesome. And uh, all right, I'm going to get back to reading the paper. Okay. And she puts it back up. But kids, they don't let things go, um, do they? She came back and she's like, no, no, daddy, 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 watch me again. Watch me again. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll watch you again. So he puts the newspaper back down. All right, let's see it. Okay, honey, that's great. I'm so proud of you. That's so great. All right. Gets back to reading the newspaper. Daddy, 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 daddy. Watch me. Watch my trick. Okay, honey, I've, I've seen your trick before. Uh, last time. That's what we tell kids, right? Last time. Last time. Do it one more time. She does her little somersault. Okay, honey, uh, why don't you go in your room and, uh, and, and, and why don't you play? Let dad uh, just have some time to finish reading the paper. She skirts off to her room. And then as she's in her room... What he didn't realize was going on is that she continued to do her flips and her somersaults in her room, but she had jumped off of her bed and she landed in a way where she actually hurt herself and her cry at that point became, Daddy, 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 Daddy. And he throws the newspaper down, leaps up from the recliner and goes and scoops his daughter up in his arms who is crying because she hurt herself 
and he's wanting to hold her and give her his love and give her his attention in that moment. And this is exactly what we do often with God, is that we cry out, Daddy, Daddy, to God to try to get his attention, but we're trying to get his attention by showing us what we can do. God, look at how strong I am. Look at how, what I've accomplished in life. Look at what I've been able to do. And we're boasting in our own strength. And God's not impressed with your gifts. God's not impressed with your strength because he's like, yeah, I gave you that gift. So I'm not impressed. God, look, look at my gift. Look at what I'm doing for you. And we try to do things for God in a way where we think that somehow we put him in our debt and he like owes us something. God, look at what I did for you. Oh, look at that check I wrote, God. Did you see how many zeros was on that check, Jesus? I want to make sure Jesus sees that. You see how many hours I served? You see what I did? I volunteered in the nursery. Did you see what I did? Now, I will caveat there. I do think those people have a special place in heaven. Uh, but at the same time, we, we tout those things in front of God as if we've accomplished something and done something. He's supposed to go. And God's just not impressed. He's not impressed. But the moment that we cry out like that little girl did out of desperation, Daddy, 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 he's there to, to comfort us, to hold us, to, 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 to show us that he's faithful and he's always there and he's always near to us and he's never far away, even though sometimes we may feel it. Because God is looking for the heart that is surrendered to him that recognizes this truth, that I need Jesus. That recognizes he is sufficient and he is what I need. And when I cry out to him, not God, look what I can do. Not look at my strength. Not God, look at my ability. But Jesus, I need you. I'm desperate. I need you. And when I cry out to him, he answers our cry. Amen? God's grace through Christ has given us a new identity. That's the identity where we cry out, Abba, Father. That's the identity where we cry out, Daddy, God. That's the identity where we understand who we are and we understand whose we are. A couple of years ago, I got into researching my family history. My last name is Armstrong, and so I found out that there's a Scottish clan, Armstrong, and that's where all Armstrongs came from, actually. And I did this deep dive on it. I did the whole DNA test thing where you send off this kit. And let me tell you, what they make you do to send that kit in is gross. I would hate to be the person on the receiving end of those DNA kits. Um, but they, they, they got my DNA, let's just put it that way, and they tested my DNA and found out, you know, all this fun, cool stuff about my family history. And then they send you all this really cool, detailed stuff. Maybe some of you have done this before. And it's really exciting when you start connecting the dots and learning your family history. I found the very first Armstrong from my lineage that came over to the United States. I found out where he's buried and all that cool stuff and learned some history about all of those people. And it was amazing. But a lot of times when people go on these quests to research their family history, they're looking for something. They're looking for this thing that they can fill in the gaps of who they are because they're searching for who am I? I, I want to know who am I? I want to know where did I come from? And I, let me tell you, the Armstrongs, we were cattle thieves. So I don't know if you have cows. You might not want to have me over. I might trigger and I might want to take Bessie home with me in the middle of the night. You know, it, it's in my DNA. I would just say I can't help it. Um, I found out that, you know, we were cattle thieves. So, yeah, that's a bright spot in the Armstrong family history. 
But as I look back on that, people go, man, I want to find out stuff about my family. I want to find out, you know, uh, who I am. And so many people anchor their identity in the past. And that's exactly what was happening with the Christians that Paul was writing to because he has this church in Ephesus that he's writing to. And it's made up of Christians who grew up Greek and those who grew up as Jews. And the people who were Greek, they grew up worshiping all of these false idols and these false gods. They grew up worshiping a pantheon of gods. And a lot of the worship that they would do to celebrate would be sexual in nature, very sensual in nature. And man, they enjoyed it because they got to fulfill all the lust of their flesh through worshiping these false gods and these false deities. And they grew up thinking that was normal and that was acceptable and that was okay. Now you take the Jews on the other hand, they grew up knowing that their father's Abraham and that they have all this great tradition and all this great heritage. They grew up having the law and the prophets and they grew up trying to accomplish the law, memorize the law, be people who were, who were morally right in the eyes of God and they wanted to be people who studied and showed themselves approved to understand the, the, the writings that were in the scriptures and they, they spent their whole life so that was normal to them. Now you take Jews and you take Greeks, and now you bring Christ into the picture, and now these people all are becoming followers of Jesus, and they're being made new, and they're being made alive, and now there's one spirit, and they each have their own reservations about each other. The Jews are thinking, man, we're proud of our heritage. That's our identity. And Paul has to help them understand, you, you've got to let that go, that you're just basing your identity on what you know or what you've done or what you haven't done. Your identity is now wrapped up in Christ and in Christ alone. And all the things you grew up learning should have pointed you to Christ. And the Greek has a different challenge. The Greek is having to let, a, let go of all of the sensuality and all of the careless living and, and giving in to all the lusts of their flesh. And now they're having to dedicate their life just to one God alone, not to a pantheon of gods, but to one God alone, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, and, and they're having to understand who he is and they're learning to grow in that and let go of those things. But they don't have some of the hurdles that the Jews have and the Jews don't have some of the hurdles that the Greeks have. And so Paul tries to help them to understand how to live together and help them understand where their identity comes from. It doesn't come from what you've done. It doesn't come from what you haven't done. It doesn't come from who your daddy is or who your grandpappy is. No, it comes from Christ. And he's trying to give them an identity that's wrapped up and anchored in Christ. And that's the spirit that he writes the rest of what we're going to read here in Ephesians chapter 2. So let's pick it back up here in Ephesians 2 and verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, he's speaking to the Greeks there, the Gentiles, in the flesh you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hand. So he's saying here that the difference was that there were people who were a covenant people to God, the Jews, and it was based off of this covenant of circumcision that was given to Abraham back in the Old Testament, and they've been following this tradition for centuries. And he's saying, you guys who didn't grow up with this, you were referred to as the uncircumcision. And so he's addressing the Gentiles first, and he's letting them know who they are in Christ. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, here's the turnaround, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So he's saying those who had heard and those who hadn't heard. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So he's saying there's not a different pathway for Jews. There's not a different pathway for Gentiles. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here he's telling these Jewish people, hey, guess what? These Gentiles now, these Greek people that you're worshiping and fellowshipping with, they're actually on this level playing field with you. Ooh, oh, hmm, I don't know how I feel about that. Because do you know what they do? Do you know what they grow up doing? You know what they've normalized in their culture? Mm-mm. Do you know what their grandparents used to do, worshiping? I mean, I'm glad they're in the church now, believe me. But do you know, and we do the same things. We think that because of our upbringing, what we have done, what we haven't done, we can look down upon other people when we begin to compare ourselves to other people. And folks, can I tell you how dangerous of a place that is to get your identity from, you comparing yourself to other people? That's so dangerous because you're always having to be better than someone else, and someone else is all having to be, always having to be worse than you. Can I tell you that apart from Christ, we're all on the same playing field in the eyes of God? And can I tell you, because of Christ, we're all on the same playing field because of what he's done, amen? It's not all of the sudden, you know, oh, well, there's, there's this class warfare in Christianity. There's like first-class Christians and bulk-rate Christians, you know. There, there's not like, you know, those people that, you know, I mean, I know, I, I know they love Jesus, but I don't want to fellowship with them. I don't want to know them. I don't really want to connect with them. No, 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 he's saying, guys, those who were referred to as the uncircumcision, those who worshiped in these ways that, yeah, they were vile, guess what? Because of Christ, we're all one family and we're all part of being built as the house of God, the church, the body of Christ. So it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far away that you ever considered yourself from God. If you are in Christ, there is no class warfare in Christianity. We are one in the spirit because of Jesus. Jesus doesn't love me because I'm a pastor more than he loves you. He doesn't love you because you've been saved and have been walking with God for 50 years. And, and, and our friend Dustin, who was just baptized today, is loved just as much by Jesus as you are, who've been walking with Jesus for 50 years. Amen? So it's not what I've done. It's not what I've accomplished. It's rather what Christ has done. And it's his grace that's been shown to me. Our response then is to continually deepen and surrender and live to please him. We are living for the glory of God. That's why Colossians 3.23, the apostle Paul makes it very clear that whatever we do, work heartily as for the Lord. Doesn't matter what it is, eating, sleeping, working. Don't do it for men. Don't do it for the approval of man. That's not where your identity comes from. Your identity comes from, from Christ and Christ alone. And here's what I want us to remember more than anything else today is that we never stop needing Jesus. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. 
I don't care what you've done, what you haven't done, where you've been, where you haven't been. You never stop needing Jesus. As a matter of fact, the longer you walk with him, the sweeter the gospel should be to you. Because you realize how far you were before Christ. And now because of Christ, you've been brought near. You've been brought close. He's brought you into his family, and it's by faith that we're now saved. We're trusting in what he's done. He's brought us to a place of seeing our need and, 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 and realizing our sinfulness and repenting of that and turning away from that and, and committing our lives to him and putting our faith and our trust and our hope in him and, and then continuing to grow and follow in the footsteps of Christ and living a life that is bringing glory to God. And that's now where my identity comes from. And any time that I can drift any time that I begin to look at my shoes again and go, oh yeah, look, there's, that's, that's what makes me accepted. Anytime I can look at, back on my track record, anytime I get busy polishing my trophies of what I've done for God and I go, daddy, daddy, look what I can do. I need to remember. I need to be reminded. Hear me today, church. Hear me, those of you watching online. Hear me today. We never stop needing Jesus. When I'm anchored in my need for Christ and when I'm anchored in understanding and continuing to grow in understanding the sufficiency of Christ and what Jesus has done through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, I can rest. I can exhale. I can have a peace that passes my understanding that guards my heart and my mind through Christ Jesus. I can now live a life and all the good works that I'm called to. As Paul said, now we're called unto good works. So the good works I do, I'm not looking at in order to try to get God to like me. No, no, no. I'm not trying to get God to love me through my works. That's not the pathway. It's that he already has loved me. And when I receive that, now the good works come from that love. They come out of that love. They come out of that devotion, out of that surrender. And Christ is that anchor. Christ is that foundation. Christ is that cornerstone. And when Christ is the cornerstone, we need to be reminded because we drift how far apart we were from Christ. We need to be reminded that we're no longer living in condemnation from the past. We need to be reminded that we are equipped to live free from man's opinion. And when I understand this gospel truth, it equips me to confidently share Christ with other people. You may not get all the words just right. You may not get all the scripture references down just perfect. But if you know what Christ has done for you and you've put your faith and trust in him, you can share Christ with other people because you can share your story of what he's done for you. You can do that confidently. Why? Because I know him and I'm known by him. I know who I am in Christ and I know whose I am and we continually grow in that. A huge part of our new identity in Christ is anchoring ourselves in the understanding of He is that cornerstone. Let's sing that today and solidify that in our hearts as we worship Him.